Good morning. I'm, I'm glad to see that we finally timed one of these shipping conferences well. Uh, chemical tanker panel here today. Uh, we have Bart Kelleher from Kembulk Tankers. We have Bjorn Christian Reed from Ogfell Shipping. And we have Hans Feringa from Team Tankers. So I'll start with Bart. We all know what crude tankers are. Those are those big ships that carry oil <coughs> and they get paid $300,000 a day. But help us understand the differences between <coughs> product tankers and chemical tankers. Sure, uh, good, good lead-in question, thanks. Uh, I think we think about the chemical tanker space in terms of that it's, it's true industrial shipping. So it's much more about a logistics business and one where you carry a wide range of cargoes, you often carry multiple cargoes, and it's so different in terms of just filling a vessel with a homogeneous cargo and going from point A to B and more of maybe perhaps routine trade. And on the chemical side, one where the operational intensity, uh, where smart operations actually can make a much more meaningful impact on your TCE. And whether it's how the vessel's parceled, how the vessel's stowed, how you arrange for cleaning, port turnaround, uh, all make notable impact. Um, so just a more complex business in general. Uh, and then on the customer side, one that actually is balanced with existing contracts uh, with customers to move particular volumes over the course of the year. Uh, another basic customer, which is often repeat spot business, and then still having availability and capacity for um, pure spot business, sometimes with more trader type entities um, and supplemented with others. Thank you. If we look back over the last 15, 20 years, there's been a tight correlation between chemical tanker rates, product tanker rates, and, and crude tanker rates. And I know it's early, early days here, and it's been very exciting, particularly on the VLCC side. But is this, short, is this deviation, do you believe it to be short-lived? Bjorn, why don't you start with that? Uh, I think you know, the deviation is there. Uh, we don't move uh, you know, that fast as, as the crude and, and the product tanker um, uh, segments. Uh, but we have seen, we saw last year, you know, the rates bottoming out during the third quarter, uh, correlating with a weak uh, CPP market. Uh, and then you saw an improvement in our market quite immediately after the CPP market uh, took off in October last year. Um, then you saw into 2019 uh, that our markets did not fall back as the crude and the CPP market did. Uh, of course, it fell back slightly uh, over the course of the summer. Um, but now we're seeing, uh, again, you know, the, the domino effect, uh, which we have used to be seeing for the last 15, 20 years. We will see uh, moving higher, uh, followed by, you know, then the Suez Max follows, and then the product tankers with LRs. Now we're seeing uh, the MRs moving as well. Uh, and now we are again, uh, now we are again seeing uh, chemical tanker market uh, rates and veg oil rates uh, slowly moving higher. So we are approaching that stage where we have that normal, you know, one and a half to two month uh, lag effect before we see it in, in chemicals. And, and Han, same question, what's your perspective on this? Well, you know, we're, I think with team, we're sort of 50-50 uh, chems uh, and product. Um, we have a very industrial supply chain business on the short sea uh, uh, stainless steel ships, 60-65% uh, contracted. Uh, so we didn't really see a, much of a downturn. Uh, uh, not, not really that much correlation, I think, with product, especially if you're in the more parcel kind of business. Um, and I think the delay on that 
is because there still is a little bit too much capacity coming on. Uh, that gets significantly better uh, next year. Uh, then when I look at our deep sea business, which is largely product, uh, clearly we're starting to see an improvement. Uh, from October to November, we'll see, I think, a few thousand dollars a day increase. Still not good enough, uh, but definitely heading in the right direction. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the V spillover, you'll really find 16 LRs last week moving from product to dirty. Uh, that takes at least half a year to come back. So that's, that's really helpful. Uh, so we should see an acceleration of the uh, product market improving uh, and, and then uh, chemicals after that. On the chemical side, you often have longer term contracts, so there is a bigger lag. The DMD view is we saw the trough for the entire tanker segments in the first half of this year, and we've got a recovery that could last through 2020. Do you see any, any risks to that scenario? Why don't we start with you, Bart? Uh, I think it's important to emphasize that it's, uh, it's very fundamental based in terms of the supply and the demand uh, and, and really the supply side story playing out even before we talk about IMO 2020 and potential accelerant. And, uh, and so the order book now being at you know, all time low, depending on how you define it, six to 7% of the total fleet and seeing the fleet growth decline from the 2% the level to 1% uh, and, and further down and having that multi-year visibility. So feel very good and solid in terms of uh, the supply additions being at very low levels and historically low for a multi-year period. And then when you layer in demand, uh, demand for chemicals, I think you have to go back to the ultimate chemical market and the specialty product market. <coughs> It's one that's correlated with global GDP, but because of the different themes in terms of, of uh, population growth, urbanization, the rise of the middle class in Asia, that it's one that exceeds GDP at the chemical level, and then you have the added benefit of a ton mile component in terms of the incremental chemical traveling a longer distance, uh, and whether that's from the US or the Middle East to a source in Asia. And so net-net, you see this widening spread between demand and supply. Um, I think we're all watching very carefully in terms of the global GDP level and, and that there might be some pullback there, but still the, there is a notable gap between demand and supply and that theme should play out for a multi-year period. And, and Bjorn, just to stay with the GDP topic, uh, chemical tanker demand growth has exceeded GDP uh, global growth for the five of the last six years. One, do you think it continues? And, and, and two, what are the driving factors that you see behind it? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's going to continue. That's, uh, that's a short answer. And the reason is that, you know, the production facilities being built now, that is uh, surrounded, is being built in the U.S. and the Middle East, and that's going to continue. Uh, so we need to move away from looking at chemicals, uh, you know, as a component of GDP growth. We need to focus on this on a bottom-up level, meaning that we need to focus on shipping demand growth. Uh, so with the U.S. and Middle East uh, expansions, suddenly you see a lot more of the production being uh, shipped, uh, you know, seaborne, uh, where the investments are taking place in the U.S. and the Middle East because you want access to feedstocks. Uh, and then you have the third country where you have a large uh, expansions building chemical plants, and that is China. And they are basically uh, reducing their imports from Korea, Japan, Taiwan. 
So suddenly you have that, you know, uh, you know uh, deviation from GDP uh, in China when it comes to shipping demand. And then you have the Korean, Japanese, Taiwanese suppliers seeking other markets uh, at saturated pri prices, uh, lower margins, and they're targeting Europe. So then suddenly you have the ton mile component, which Bart was uh, talking about, that you have to look at this from a, you know, from a shipping perspective. Uh, it's not, you know, going from A to B uh, like we did, you know, uh, seven, eight years ago. Um, and I guess, you know, GDP will be a topic, I guess, you know, in all the panels, but uh, for us, I would say GDP growth and a slowdown is our cushion based on the number of products we have, uh, but it's not necessarily a, you know, two, uh, two lines beneath, the, you know, the answer saying that this is, re reflects uh, chemical tanker demand. Hans, if you take our forecast and we're looking for less than 2% fleet growth over the balance of this year and next, and we're looking for roughly 4% demand growth this year and next, and you take in all the factors, IMO 2020, scrapping, potential slow, slow steaming, do you think it could be better than that in terms of the supply de demand dynamics? No, I, I think uh, it's about as good as we've seen, certainly from a long for a long period. We, we are coming from a time that there was an oversupply of ships, right? I mean, that's why uh, market rates are horrible. Um, so it'll take, it does take some time to, uh, to get that going. I, I think this inversion that we're seeing, uh, which Bjorn mentioned also, you know, if you look at the last 10 years, all but the last two years, we saw average ton miles going down, voyage duration going down, the regional fleets were growing faster than the deep sea. The last two years, we've seen a pretty good inversion there, and that looks to continue. And I think uh, that's a really, really important fundamental, uh, and it's because of the AG and the US Gulf uh, gas competitive and feedstock competitive uh, uh, position. Um, and, uh, you know, US exports, all of that's long haul. And even though the AG is closer, uh, there's a, such a big imbalance that you're having to ballast ships in to get a bigger ton-mile effect for all production in the AG. So I, I think it's uh, looking good. I, I think there are enough ships uh, and there needs to be some discipline uh, that people don't willy-nilly go and order unnecessary ships. Uh, when you look at the smaller short sea business, we're still quite away from uh, replacement value uh, and that needs to catch up. Right? There needs to be significant increase on freight rates uh, to make investment on the sh short sea uh, side uh, viable. Uh, but I think we can see the rationale and, and that slowly happening. And just to, just to add to the uh, you know, potential <coughs> upside, the downside to you know, your forecast for 2020, I mean, I think swing tonnage is, you know, will play an instrumental role where you could uh, potentially see a negative fleet growth based on uh, MRs moving back to trade CPP from our markets. Uh, we saw now during the summer that suddenly 28% of the world's MRs between 45 and 55,000 deadweight tons were trading chemicals or regoids. The historical average has been 13%. So on an isolated basis, the chemical tanker market is, has been doing fairly well, but we have been struggling with uh, a weak uh, you know, crude and CPP market. So if that market, you know, continues uh, <laughs> with the momentum they have uh, right now, I think based on supply growth for next year could potentially be negative. So that's a huge uh, joker, I would say, based on the tightness in our market uh, the next 12 months. And, and, and I'd say anecdotally, I mean, we're already seeing that in the market today. So those swing cargoes and whether it's a UAN, particular veg oil, uh, 
we as, as the chemical tanker players are getting a lot more calls onto the chartering desk and there's a scramble for short-term cargoes in terms of that the CPP um, and MR guys aren't interested in the cargoes. They don't necessarily want to go to a different region. They want to stay in the Atlantic Triangle and continue to move CPP now. So I think, you know, key point of inflection and market momentum is actually happening right now. Tell us about your the way you look at the scrubbers and the cost of scrubbers and viability of it with, with the fleets that you have. Hans, you want to start? Yeah, you know, um, it's a pretty simple uh, decision on the short sea basis. Uh, these scrubbers will not even fit on these ships. Uh, we're often in uh, sea care areas where we're <coughs> having to um, burn MGO. Uh, the port restrictions would be a major issue. Uh, so short sea, I think, is a very, very simple decision that won't make sense for anyone. Um, MRs are on the cusp, uh, but if you're doing a lot of MR trade from a major hub to a major hub, I think you're in trouble anyway, because that should be happening on bigger ships. Uh, so we're going to a lot of secondary and outports, uh, and I think you're going to see that high fuel oil availability is a problem. Uh, not in the major ports, not in the top 50, but beyond that, it is going to be a problem because there just isn't the logistics. No one has added uh, storage capacity. They all had MGO, they all keep MGO, but by definition, those secondary ports are not ports for, for big ships. Most of the ships calling there will not have scrubbers the tank storage capacity will move from heavy fuel oil to low sulfur fuel oil because they're not adding a third stream. Um, and I think that's actually what's going on at the moment. You're seeing more volatility on heavy fuel oil because people are already not sending it to certain ports because they don't want to be left long uh, after January. Uh, but we're not necessarily, that means that storage needs to be uh, cleaned we're not yet seeing enough of the low sulfur fuel being moved. So I think we're going to, more or less now, uh, going to have to start seeing a catch up uh, on that fuel to have compliant fuel in all these secondary ports. Um, so for us, it was an easy decision. Uh, no, I also don't think it's, um, it's the most elegant uh, decision. Um, you know, I. In many ways, I would have preferred IMO to have just said, let's go to clean fuel, um, because I think there's potentially an issue with discharging uh, you know, all the particulate matter uh, in concentrated areas. Uh, I don't think there's enough science there, um, uh, but I also don't think that scrubbers are necessarily going to be a very long-term uh, solution. And just to add to that, uh, Oddfield's view on, on, on scrubbers. I mean, if we have 50% of our vessels on contract, or 50% of our volumes, um, and there we have a pass-through uh, effect to our customers, if we were to put a scrubber on one of our you know, most thirsty ships, that would completely change the discussion we have with our customers. So we're basically adding a problem to our ship, because then suddenly we need to defend the, the spread that we added to our calculations to get a payback for that scrubber. Uh, but going to the customers and say that, hey, you need to pay MGO prices here uh, at $600, but while we are consuming fuel at $200, uh, 
then we put ourselves in a pretty weak spot where they will refuse to do that, potentially. Um, so so uh, that is also one of the reasons why we have chosen not to, to look further into scrubbers. Okay, could you pick up on the same topic, please? Sure, just, uh, say, you know, Kempov's focus on the 19.9 to 32.33 thousand stainless, so similar to, uh, to the rationale from Hans, just in terms of vessel size, where that vessel trades, the fuel that that vessel burns, um, for a, a middle-aged fleet, just it, it doesn't make sense to actually um, put a scrubber on board and ins install. And when we look at the broader competitive fleet that we uh, that we compete against, um, we assess that it looks like it's about four to five percent of that total fleet that may have scrubbers. And so, um, while those particular owners may have, um, you know, in certain cases when they they're able to burn the uh, the heavy sulfur fuel. A, uh, a spread increase that's, uh, you know, that's not going to clear the market and the majority of the fleet is going to be very similar to what it is today. And, and Bjorn, do you want to address whatever concerns you have as it relates to uh, availability of low sulfur fuel next um, year? We, uh, I would say we started this process in 2016 um, and then on the way, uh, I mean, we were concerned about the availability of the VLSFO, but during 2018 um, we were pretty confident that that won't be an issue. We will have that in the, in the major ports. Uh, we'll also, we also expect that there will be a margin for the producers to ship um, compliant fuel to, this, to the smaller ports as well. Um, and we've been testing uh, the fuel for the last uh, 18 months uh, without any major issues. Um, you know, we have close uh, communication with the suppliers. So, uh, so I would say that is uh, a topic that we're not focusing on uh, as we speak. The chemical tanker, uh, business is a rather fragmented business despite quite a bit of M&A in the last five or six years. What's your, what's your view on further consolidation within the segment? Bart, why don't we start with you? Sure. So, I mean, absolutely, uh, it's fragmented. Uh, it's, it's poised for further consolidation. Uh, I, I think that it's one that it's going to be evolutionary in nature uh, and, and at times I think historically and maybe at conferences like this and in the past when we saw one marquee deal, there may have been anticipation that it actually was going to have a domino effect and really build a momentum. Uh, but I think now as you, you think back, um, part of the, uh, the drivers that are now starting to come together in terms of improving freight market, improving um, valuation levels for the public players, and, and you know whether that means in terms of them looking at potential M&A where their share has greater value and is it NAV or, or potentially even above in some cases, uh, and at the same time perhaps able to raise incremental capital that as these start to come together um, and that all of the players I think have been quite active in terms of dialogues over the past few years knowing that there is the opportunity to further consolidate. Um, at the end of the day, scale is important. It's important in this business. Um, it's something where you can drive greater economies and meet greater, um, you know, requirements for the capital markets. And, uh, and I think that, you know, we'll actually see a pickup in activity in the, uh, in the next 12 to 18 months. And Hans, what's your, what's your perspective on further consolidation? I, I think it's, uh, it's necessary. I think the environment is changing. I think, uh, the research and development that you need uh, for the coming challenges, uh, decarbonization. I think if we don't, as an industry, make enough progress, we're going to be uh, confronted, maybe we will anyway, with things like CO2 tax, 
that will drive behavior. Um, but there's quite a lot of um, regulatory uh, and design uh, research and design uh, work to be done. Uh, I also think data management is going to increasingly play a role. Uh, people are starting to do some of this already. Um, and I think to make sense of it, you need to have sufficient scale. Uh, so I think uh, there's going to be an increasing push uh, to scale. The other thing, in the public markets, if you're not, there are smaller public uh, markets, but I would say typically you want to be $750 billion or larger. When you look at the product chemical space, there's no one there on the chemical side. Even on the product side, there's maybe one player, <coughs> Scorpio, uh, and I think uh, there are advantages, so there needs to be this drive uh, towards scale. Uh, and I think sooner or later uh, it will happen, and I think the uh, regulatory and uh, uh, decarbon challenge and the investment there uh, will help to drive that. Certainly the passive investments and the ETFs have largely ignored the shipping space for that very reason. The, the, the fastest growing area within active management has been the spectacular growth in the last two years of, of funds managed with disciplines around ESG. And uh, Bart, uh, Bjorn, I'm sorry, why don't I start with you and talk about uh, how ESG conversations enter into the boardroom, how they enter into your long-term planning, how they enter into your CapEx decisions. Why don't you start us off? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always been high on the agenda, uh, but now it's been uh, you know, put forward in the investor community and the banking community as well. So of course, this is something that we spend a lot of time on, and I guess everyone else uh, does the same. Uh, taking the E uh, out of those, that uh, acronym, I mean, Lower emissions, we believe this will you know, go hand in hand with um, better efficiency and then better economics. So we spend a lot of time looking at various ways to reduce our um, consumption, which in the end is, is good for the environment and is also good for economics. Uh, I'm not going to make a fool of myself mentioning all the stuff we do. Um, it's quite, uh, quite a lot <laughs> of initiatives we are doing, but mentioning, for example, weather routing, uh, where we do advanced uh, you know, technology, where we uh, constantly try to use the wave the, uh, and the currents to uh, reduce our consumption. In 2018, using that, we reduced the revenue days by you know, 75 uh, days, adding that with uh, the consumption of, of, of fuel, then suddenly we have a reduced cost uh, of roughly a million dollars. Um, and then, of course, we also uh, lower our uh, environmental footprint. Uh, we use, uh, you know, uh, divers to, to, uh, to clean up the propellers, uh, which has a measured effect by reducing consumption by two tons per day, which of course is a huge, uh, has a good environmental impact and also economical impact. And we're also involved in a, uh, in a fuel cell project where within the next two years, uh, we will have one vessel running on uh, fuel cells, uh, ammonia, LNG, etc. So this is, of course, something that is driven by a constant focus within the organization um, to, to uh, of course, always improve ourselves. Um, taking kind of the CapEx decisions and what we need to do on the fleet, like, uh, that's really you know, the next wave of orders. Uh, it is a challenge to be the potential first mover. Uh, do you really want to invest in a vessel for 25, 30 years uh, consuming um, fuel oil? 
uh, it's a good chance that within the next three to five years that uh, vessel is not necessarily competitive uh, and the residual risk you have uh, by adding that to your fleet is, is pretty huge. So that is something we as a company internally and the board uh, you know, use a lot of time on uh, to, to analyze uh, and try to you know, meet the future in the, in the best uh, you know, possible uh, matter. Thank you. Hans, can you talk about your ESG focus within your company? You know, I think especially um, in our business, we are in the business of moving hazardous chemicals and product around the world, right? So environmental, and it started, I think, with, uh, you know, no spills uh, delivered uh, or developed into uh, uh, also on an economic basis uh, into emissions. Uh, but safety uh, has been core from the very beginning. Uh, you can't be in this uh, business. It's the license to operate. Uh, we, and I think uh, certainly uh, my colleagues on the side here, we're also trying to work with the most demanding customers. Right? If you're a sizable company working with the most demanding customers, they will not accept uh, safety incidents. Uh, they'll vote with their feet. Uh, they will also not accept uh, spills and things like that. ExxonMobil measures if you have a spill to water, they measure it in teaspoons uh, of product going to water. Uh, they're that irritated. Uh, so there's a discipline that if you're working with the best, uh, you're also getting that discipline. And we've had that for many, many years. Um, I think when the oil price, you know, the oil price went to $100 a barrel or so, uh, that really focused the economic uh, uh, argument on... Uh, fuel consumption, uh, the things that Bjorn mentioned, you know, we, we have torque meters on all our ships. Uh, the, the detail at which you now control the, the speed, the effort that these ships are making to maximize those returns is enormous, uh, a lot of measurement. <coughs> you actually now have to measure it for IMO, so that's, if you have the systems in place, that's very easy. Um, and I think governance, there's much more focus now also on governance. And if you're a public company, uh, there's, I think, two or three things that you really got to get right. You've got to get the scale right. You've got to get the competence right. You've got to be peer, peer group leading. And you've got to have your compliance and governance right. The investor needs to see uh, management uh, and shareholder alignment, long-term alignment. Um, and. Uh, they, they have a lot of power in this, right? Uh, and you see that they're not investing when they're not, uh, not happy. Uh, so I think uh, it's, it's a good, good development, uh, but I wouldn't say that ESG is such a, a change. I think we've been living it for the last 20, 20 years. And Bart, in 60 seconds, can you give us your quick update on? Sure, I mean, Echo, similarly on the, uh, the safety and the efficiency side and the uh, protection for the environment. And, and these are all key metrics that, uh, that are produced for the board as, as well as internal management. And, uh, and then that goes to the, the board. You know, we're a private company owned by private equity shareholders. We, we do have a public bond. But I think the uh, blue chip PE firms also bring from a corporate governance perspective a level that's very helpful and constructive for the industry in ensuring that there's alignment of interest between management and the shareholders, 
uh, really fiduciary duties being echoed and discussed uh, whenever we're together. And then at the same time, actually pulling in independents and having them on your board and giving that perspective, uh, and whether it's at the board level or the, the actual committees that, um, you know, private ship owner can actually take that approach today too and, and actually runs a more effective and efficient corporation as a result. Thank you very much. Maybe, maybe just one. Uh, sure. I, I think uh, one of the things that is maybe changing is that uh, although ESG has been a big part of what we do, we, we delivered a lot of that internally. And I think now we're starting to deliver more externally. There's a investment bank has just uh, uh, put in some work. I think they're going to publish pretty quick, pretty soon, uh, an ESG transparency uh, report. Uh, so we're suddenly I think we're not suddenly, but we're certainly uh, being trying to be more transparent and make more of that public. Not only the KPIs on the safety and environmental side, uh, including the IMO uh, measurements on uh, CO2 uh, efficiency, but also things like uh, diversity uh, uh, results in board and management. Uh, I think all of that, we're trying to be more transparent, and that probably is change, and I think that's a good one. Thank you very much, and we've used up our time. Thank you.